session uh, of the day is, is really an interesting one that we've, we've created here for you today, which is to try and give you a little bit of context to a broader thematic around biotechnology um, and particularly how biotechnology um, has changed in the, in the treatment of cancer. And so I'm joined today by, by three doctors, actually. Oh. <laughs> we can pretend. We can pretend. Uh, Chris Cullis, Leslie Chong, and, and David Gillard. And we're really just going to go and look at the broader backdrop to um, a particular theme that has been a really positive, successful theme in Australia, which is the biotechnology and medical space. And we've, we've, we all know about CSL, um, Cochlear, ResMed, some really successful businesses out there. And so we wanted to do a bit of a showcase in terms of you know, what's happening in the Australian marketplace from a biotechnology um, perspective. So Chris will give a bit of a broader backdrop in terms of the marketplace. Leslie will give a more specific example in terms of a particular company that's listed um, on, the, on the Australian Stock Exchange that's looking at uh, a particular aspect of cancer treatment and David to sort of really look at how this actually applies in the in the in a hospital setting, a university hospital being Macquarie University, and how robotics um, has been changing the way that cancer has been treated. Just a quick word of warning: in David's slides, there is a little bit of um, blood and gore, um, and it's all in the name of cancer treatment. I know it may you might want to cover your eyes, but um, just as a as a pre-warning. So if you're if you're feeling a bit uneasy, you should cover your eyes instead. Um, Chris, do you want to kick start? Go. I'll get up onto the podium. Yep, absolutely. And thanks, Alex, for the invitation to present. Um, I'm from MST Access, which is a part of the MST group. You might be familiar with MST MyKey. Um, my uh, mandate is to um, bring interesting micro-cap companies to the attention of institutional and retail investors. And my particular focus is biotech and healthcare. Um, so, given that background, Alex has asked me to give some, some kind of context to focus us in on this particular sector within healthcare. It's, it can be quite uh, daunting, uh, looking beyond CSL and all the majors. So, I thought just uh, starting with the big picture, the, the healthcare sector represents about $184 billion. As you can see on, the, uh, on your left, that comprises a multitude of subsectors, and unlike the US, where each of those would be a, a sector in itself, we may have two or three, up to five companies in each, in, in, at maximum in those sectors. So that makes navigating this sector quite difficult and quite uh, time-consuming for people wanting to do fundamental analysis. And each of those sectors has got its own dynamic, which makes it even more complicated. So if we strip out all the service providers, um, cannabis, uh, exclude CSL and all the majors, that suddenly drops down to 17 billion. Um, we're going to focus in on that big part of the pie, which is biotech. Uh, so you can see it's, it's very much skewed towards those large um, caps that we all, uh, large companies that we all know. Um, Biotech is running uh, quite hot at the moment. We've had uh, a number of major deals in the last five years, which has reinvigorated uh, enthusiasm and confidence in the sector, or at least interest. The, the last major deal, which happens to be a cancer uh, drug company, was Virolytics back in February of 2018. That's a company that I first became aware of back in 2014, when it was a uh, market cap of about 26 million. And that was taken out by Merck, 
for 500 million, which at that time was the largest biotech deal in our history. That has obviously like enthused uh, uh, the, the whole sector uh, and makes cancer such an interesting area to talk about today. Um, that, uh, having said that, this year is having a great run in biotech. We've had some major wins um, across the, the sector, which has really brought in a lot of retail interest. You look at Opthia, which um, is now 400% up year to date based on some very positive clinical to, uh, phase two clinical trial results. There's Polonovo, Avita Medical. There's, we've had, we're actually having quite a, a good year to date in the biotech sector. What we're going to concentrate is on the more innovative uh, end of that pie, which is the, 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 the section in red. These are companies that are characterized by uh, money spent on R&D. Uh, and as you can see, um, and cannabis is a bit of an anomaly, but we've got to include it because it does, it's come from nowhere, but it does represent 15% of that pie. And that pie does represent $13.4 billion. Um, in terms of number of companies represented, uh, it's interesting, but the ones that are uh, some way related to oncology are the highest in number in that sector. So that's 18 companies. Despite that, it only represents 11% of the total market cap of that red pie. Uh, on the right-hand side, you can see how much money uh, these companies have raised. So, typically, um, the companies in this group are uh, obviously stage development companies. They're, they need money to fund trials and all sorts of things. So, they're always coming back to market. So, you see, the, so that's not an, an unusual to see the oncology companies coming back to market continuously. Those numbers also include IPOs. So, that, that sort of explains why the cannabis is so high. Um, so oncology is a major interest in our market, both in the listed and unlisted market. We've got a, 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 quite a focus on um, clinical trials, uh, which is actually higher than the global average. Uh, and if you look at the global average, cancer is attracting the most clinical trial activity worldwide. I went to ASCO this year, which is the global cancer conference in Chicago, and I think in the US alone right now, there are about 1,000 clinical trials underway in just cancer alone. Um, that's not hard to understand. I don't think there are many of us who haven't been touched by cancer at a personal level, uh, and as we get better management um, strategies around all sorts of other diseases, cancer still looms high in, in, a, in a high unmet need. Um, what's driven the advances in clinical, on the clinical side for cancer? Well, our understanding of the genome uh, at, the molecular level, at the molecular level and gene editing have been, been the big breakthroughs in the last 20 years. That's obviously increased our ability to generate targeted therapies. There's been a huge uh, increase in the number of targets and subsequently uh, a huge increase in the, in the number of targeted small molecule therapies and biologics. So it's not, all bio, it's not all about biologics, but immunotherapy obviously is up there as a major area of expansion. And within that, there have been all sorts of novel mechanisms that have been elucidated and now being targeted as therapies. And just more recently in the last five years, there have been these next generation biotherapeutics, which uh, we're getting to know more about. Uh, things like uh, cell and gene therapies and uh, nucleotide therapies where we're combining, sort of conjugating um, standard traditional chemotherapy agents with uh, carrier molecules, all sorts of things. So 
And this is leading to a combination strategy for cancer. I think if anything that's come out in the last five years, it's that there's no silver bullet for cancer. It's gonna be a question of combination therapies. And that's actually good news for a lot of the companies in our market because it means we have a place at the table. Um, these are some of the technologies that have come about as a result of the scientific advances. Uh, CAR-T is getting a lot of um, uh, airplay at the moment. That is a very expensive uh, procedure. And keep in mind that th the other problem in this area, apart from actually coming up with the technologies, having the infrastructure around these therapies to implement them. So although these can be quite revolutionary, you may not have the, the infrastructure in, in your geography and your country to be able to offer the, offer the patient these therapies. Um, so that's, and these represent actually quite big deals. I think it's easy to forget how big this area is in the US. And these are just examples of um, deals that have been done the last five years. They're, these are billion dollar deals. And on the left hand side, we've got the, the actual technology. Um, by and large, small molecules still dominate our space. And you can see that in the Australian market. 44% of the companies that are targeting cancer therapies are small molecule companies. These are enzyme inhibitors and all sorts of metabolic pathway um, modulators, for want of a better word. This is an interesting slide. Um, innovation just doesn't happen at the scientific level. It's also taking place on the regulatory level. So the FDA obviously has, has recognised the, the need to bring um, promising therapies to market much quicker. So what that's resulted in is new approval pathways. We've got, in the, in the last five or six years, all from Breakthrough Fast Track. There's obviously a focus on new and validated targets which are being approved by the FDA. Um, there's obviously a, a, an innovative approach to clinical trial design, which is allowing um, a, a, an abbreviation of these uh, clinical trials. 20 years ago when I was a pharmacist, uh, small molecules were the order of the day, and back then drug development meant 15 years in the lab, and there was a very, um, uh, 15 years in clinical trial development. And that, that was quite well specified. There were so many um, years allocated to phase one, two, and three. What the FDA has allowed or approved is all sorts of abbreviated versions of clinical trial design, which allows, in some cases, with a pivotal study for, for the product to jump from phase two straight into the market, such as the uh, recognition of the need for, for, for new therapies in these areas. Uh, and there are some interesting stats at the bottom of that. So as a result of what's happening on the scientific side and the elucidation of the genetic pathways and the mapping, um, new therapies in cancer have gone from 4% of total um, approvals back in the 80s to almost 27% in recent times. Uh, there's been a record number of approvals in 2018 just for cancer, about 15 new, new uh, uh, novel um, molecules launched. Um, and a lot of that's been driven by obviously the priority ratings and the fast track um, approval pathways that the FDA is um, supporting. Having said all that, uh, success in cancer is very patchy. We can see on the far right We've had some success in blood cancers and lung to a large extent. We all have heard about Keytruda and melanoma. Uh, breast cancer is an area of big interest. 
for, for much of the industry, but that leaves a whole cohort of cancer types to the left that still have got very poor outcomes after five years. And that's a, that's a huge area of um, interest for both on the clinical side and also on the commercial side. Um, brain cancers are actually a case in point, actually, before I move on from that. Um, in, in the other, the other um, aspect of this, which is worth noting, is that because of this high unmet need, when drugs are, are licensed or acquired, they can move very quickly. So out of nowhere, uh, most recently, PARP inhibitors came, uh, they're a small molecule enzyme inhibitor. So they were uh, launched and marketed only in the last five years, and they're already billion-dollar selling products. So given the, the um, absence of effective therapies in these areas, if you have a, 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 a promising technology or a technology that, that complements an, another strategy, things can happen very quickly. Uh, this is the last slide. Uh, these are the sort of the factors that um, industry believes will accelerate productivity in the oncology uh, clinical development uh, side. A big part of that is uh, the use of big data analysis to identify cohorts or population subsets more effectively to try and um, make clinical trials more focused and hopefully speed up the results. Uh, that's probably the biggest part of that and also the availability of biomarker tests. So the two go hand in hand. Finding a diagnostic and, and a treatment are often very, very closely aligned to a success in a, in a cancer treatment. And I'll leave that up just for you to ponder, but um, obviously the biggest um, driver, so the market believes, will be this big data analysis. And you're already seeing it in, in the US where there are link-ups between um, contract research organizations and pathology operators who understand that curating population, population um, subsets according to biomarkers and genetic disposition to certain cancers will support more effective and more targeted clinical trials. So on that point, I'll hand it over. Thank you, Chris. Leslie? Thank you. That actually parlays really nicely into my presentation in that you talk about World Data Source. Google uh, X was really a part of that, providing big pharma to really put in across all their patient population and pulling that and trying to find the economics and economy of why certain cancers happen. So I think that's a really great effort. Um, so just a brief introduction to Imogene. Imogene is squarely located here in Australia. It was um, originated from a, a, a technology out of the Medical University of Vienna. And um, Mr. Paul Hopper, who was also the chair of Virolytics that sold to Merck for half a billion dollars, is also the executive chairman of my company. Um, we then acquired, um, I think the big news this year is we acquired what I would say the next generation of oncolytic virus from the City of Hope, who is the head of the robotic surgery sort of in the world, so I was asking David if he knew him, but no, um, much to my disappointment. So um, I hail from Genentech, possibly one of the world's largest biotech company. 40% of the world's oncology meds came from Genentech's um, preclinical lab. So it's technology, innovation, it was really, really pounded in my head that this is where we need to go. That science goes first, money will follow, and that's how I've sort of ran my company. And so when I joined in 2015, late 2015, 
the market cap of my company was about nine million. Um, today, I think it was upwards of 80 something, 85 million. So we're doing something right. We really want to take great technology along with Axel Hughes, who's a senior vice president of GSK, who believes in immunotherapy, was the first clinical lead on a immunotherapy checkpoint inhibitor called um, ipilimumab. Uh, we have um, Jens Eichstein, who was the president of the SR1, the, uh, the VC arm of across all of GSK, so he has seen possibly almost every, every compound that came forward. And we've got seasoned um, executives like Dr. Um, Leslie Russell on the board. So we really wanted to bolster our board to make it look like and feel like a biotech company out of the US, but here, located here with really great technology. We also wanted to bolster our scientific advisory board with um, known key people. Uh, aside from ASCA, we have the president of ESMO, which is the second largest cancer conference in the world. Um, roughly about 30,000 people just attack a European city and you're just cluttered with oncologists all over the place. We have the former uh, president of AACR, which is another um, huge cancer conference um, uh, organization. And just a few, we have doctors from, oncologists from MSKCC, Barts Institute, and as well as Mayo Clinic, because we have a scientific product that we really want to develop and we want to have the expertise in-house. So enough about um, just imaging. So immunotherapy, I think you've heard of it because it talks about how you take your innate immune system and target against a, a cancer, whereas, whereas before it used to be, you know, very general. You'd go from chemo, radiation, sometimes, you know, the, you try the small molecule or monoclonal antibodies. Roughly in about 2011, Axel um, Hughes was a clinical lead on a protocol, um, ipilimumab. He had been working for about 11 years and um, he encountered a lot of uh, naysayers, but that finally got approval in melanoma. And I wanted to add to your original um, slide about lung and, and other, melanoma happens to be one of those lines of therapy now that people can go through life with series of, series of drugs out there for you. So that's what you want. You want, you have a, a metastatic disease, you really want several different lines of therapy for when you, you know, fell. Um, so, that took 11 years, and that catapulted um, other uh, T-cell T regulators to be approved, like PD-1s, PD-L1s. Keytruda um, is becoming sort of a house name, and that was approved less than five years because there was a lot of expeditious thinking um, within the FDA as well as patients. I mean, patients rioted in this, in, on the streets for this med, so within five years, we actually had a cancer med to be approved, and it's one of those more prolific drugs out there. Um, Genentech, uh, while, whilst I was at Genentech, we also looked at uh, having a PDL one, and that took a little bit longer, about seven years to get it approval. So there's a whole line of immuno breakthrough therapy within actually the last eight years, and we keep getting more, and I'll show you some, some data. Um, 2015, Axel talked about this huge wave of immunotherapy that it's just the tip of the iceberg and we need to go further. And so further we did go. So just within two years alone, we have seen 91% increase um, in development. So we, we went from 2000, 2030 to 3008. So that's incredible, 3,876, sorry. We continue to have more innovative therapy, so 205 new targets have been added uh, to the current landscape, uh, 468 active targets. These are targets 
for cancer, as, as Chris described, cancer is not just one drug, it's several different diseases and one millions, if, if not you know, trillions. And so we have so many drugs out there that target very specific and almost personalized. So I, I really, um, I'm emboldened to hear that we've got a lot of increase, 78% increase just roughly in two years. Um, so the United States currently leads the IO pipeline. They have roughly about 47% uh, of the whole pipeline, but I think that we can bolster that with some great Australian companies to add to that. So I think in summary, um, immuno-oncology therapies are not just in US, it's going global. China is getting really into the market and getting a share. Australia um, with Merck purchase of Virolytics, um, Optea, all these other great companies that are coming. So 31 approvals by the FDA uh, for IO drugs in the past two years. That's huge, 31 approvals in cancer. Mm. Um, so the dissemination of IO activity from one country to many others may bring more innovation to the global IO space and benefit more patients with cancer worldwide. That's my hope. Um, we have a plethora of pipeline that are quite targeted. We have the oncolytic virus as well as um, our B-cell immunotherapies. And we've got quite a lot in the, in the discovery pipeline as well, um, along with our board and our SAD. We tend to look at these as the next you know, generation of meds. So thank you. Thanks, Lucy. Yep. David? Good afternoon. I think I must be the novelty act brought in to uh, talk about some lack of science. Uh, I'm uh, the, uh, both a urologist or a, a pelvic cancer surgeon and a director of medical services. Uh, this isn't about finance mostly, although in my medical director job, uh, we have to uh, look at uh, what we purchase for the hospital. We've just worked out we need about $35 million worth of equipment just to catch up. We spend several million dollars a year. Unfortunately, we spend most of it on buying equipment that's sold here but not made here. Hopefully that will change with time. So I moved from um, setting up the largest NHS and one of the earliest ones in the UK uh, in Bristol four years ago and now work at one of the largest robot centres in Australia, Macquarie University Hospital, where we've done 3,500 robot surgical cases over the last 80 years or so. I've only been there for half that time. And we aspire to an innovative high-tech hospital and we aspire to be a totally electronic hospital, which doesn't really fully explain the piles of paperwork we've got around the place. Um, and the fact the electronic records don't ever seem to work quite as well as they should. Um, maybe Australia should get into that market rather than rely on overseas uh, business. So I'm gonna talk a little bit about setting in context what we do with, with medical and mainly surgical technology, mainly using prostate and bladder cancer, my areas of interest as examples. And I apologize for one or two gory slides. It is important to set in context where the improvements come, however. Uh, I've been qualified almost 40 years because I was very young when I qualified, and this was technology for three quarters of that time. It was a scalpel. Um, and it's only in the last few years that we've actually had this replaced by uh, more modern technology. Uh, innovation was going to your back garden shed and bending some metal into a different shape and then using it on a patient. It's now you need software engineers, laser engineers, you need all sorts of people to help develop technology. And most of it's developed by countries than the US, but also the UK and Europe. Uh, there's some in Australia, but most of the stuff we buy is coming from Europe, UK, and mainly the US. Uh, this is where we're going. We're moving from being an old-fashioned orthopedic surgeon with a saw and a hammer to actually standing away from the patient and using assistive, it's not really robotic technology because robots imply uh, autonomy. It's assistive technology, which helps with more precision, accuracy, and a better 
hopefully outcome for patients, or the latter is quite difficult to actually prove. Randomized trials, are, uh, proper trials are rare in surgical devices and technologies and quite difficult to do. Uh, I will give you an example of prostate cancer where I was uh, the initial set up, set up a trial in, started in 1998. We were one of two feasibility centers. Um, it um, started recruiting properly in eight major UK centers in 2000, finished in 2008, reported last year, 20 years to get a result from a trial. Uh, and that's how long trials take for, for prostate cancer, for example. It takes a long time if you're dealing with early cancer. So this is where we move to. This is where I work now. Uh, these technologies are almost all available on site and all very expensive. Um, we have gamma knife from small brain tumors, top left. Uh, aortic valve replacement that does not involve major surgery on the right. Cochlear, it's already mentioned. Robots, new PSMA or isotope scanning techniques, robotic leg replacements with the biggest center of the world for that, in fact. Um, micro robots aren't quite there yet, but will come. All this is expensive. The gamma knife costs a million dollars every other year just to replace the core, for example. Uh, a, the uh, replacements for aortic valves that are percutaneous are $25,000 each. Tavis are now covered by uh, Medicare and by insurance companies in this country that weren't until about 18 months ago. So somebody has to pay for that. Certainly you can lose money quite in a big way in hospitals like Macquarie if you do things like that without being covered. So that's a technology we have. I just mentioned this, my friend and colleague, Professor El Medeiros, has the largest center of the world for robotic uh, leg replacements. He shoves a large metal pole up the stump and basically attaches a robot to it. And actually that is technology that is being developed and refined in Australia. So that's one great success story. Two thirds of the world's cases have been done here, in fact, in Macquarie University. And he started on British soldiers who have been flown over from Afghanistan and uh, he's now moved on to older patients, Australian soldiers, American soldiers. It's a great step forward and that is an Australian success story. That's great technology. Patients, the ones I've seen, have, it's changed their lives from using a stump to be able to have walk around and do stuff. So that's brilliant. Um, I'm going on the prostate. This is traditional method of examining the prostate. <laughs> don't tend to use our head, but we do di digital examination of blood test results around and with a bit of an ultrasound until recently. Um, we have moved on a bit. We've got cancer imaging's improved from simple chest x-rays right through to now isotope-based imaging, PET scanning, MRI scanning. And one of the great successes actually in uh, uh, prostate cancer has been the uh, how we do a biopsy, you shove a probe up the rear end and you stick some needles in it. Uh, that might seem simple, but if there's a risk of infection, there's a risk of missing the cancer. So the great break forward in technology has been the MRI scan, which has been around for actually 30 years, but in the last three to five years, work mostly coming out of the UK, I'd be proud of that one, and mostly this, by the way, the guy who got the Nobel Prize for this was from the University of Manchester, which is my alma mater, so I'm very proud of that. However, Australia and the UK have been the first two countries in the world to take this technology on. They moved it forward, they brought it into their patients very quickly. So the technology wasn't developed here, but the, uh, the adoption of technology, Australia has been leading the world uh, in that, which is great. What it does is actually rather than just generally poke a needle in the direction of the prostate and hope you hit a cancer, we can now actually find the cancer, the little black areas where the arrows are, and you can then use robotic technology. In fact, this is an ultrasound MRI fusion technique where you actually put the images together, you find that lesion, and the robot tells you where to biopsy. You just moves to the lesion and you biopsy the lesion. So it's better targeted, less morbid biopsies with technology that's been around for a long time, but just been refined and again, adopted in Australia almost before anybody else has, has done so in the world. So that's a great success story to patients that the technology has actually come out of 
the UK and in the US mostly as a Singaporean system, then just to contradict myself. Um, so that's great. We've also got PSMA PET scanning, isotope-based antibody scanning, which again Australia has adopted almost before anywhere else in the world. The technology has partly been developed here at Peter Mac in Melbourne, so it is Australian-based technology, but also from other centres. So that's another great step forward. If you identify where the cancer is, you can biopsy it more accurately and know what you're treating rather than a more blunderbuss approach. Uh, what's driven a lot of the robot technology, however, was the introduction of this machine, the Da Vinci machine by um, Intuitive Surgical from California. They always have some handsome gray-haired American bloke on, on, on an advert for some reason. Um, but basically this technology is being developed for the American military or for uh, uh, distant surgery in space, but was found not to be that useful for it. You're better off actually putting a soldier, as the British and Australian Army Bowl showed in Afghanistan, in a helicopter and flying into a hospital rather than fiddling about on the battlefield. But better results. Um, and this technology, however, has taken off as a way of giving less invasive and more precise surgery. Um, this is the gory bit. That's an open heart operation. Sorry, it's gory. You put the patient on bypass. You do an mitral valve replace. You can actually do it, not in everybody, with a robot, which means you leave people with a few puncture wounds on the skin rather than a great hole down the middle. Uh, and there are surgeons at Macquarie, one of whom, unfortunately, is about to leave to go to America, Australian surgeon, who are actually probably leaders in this minimally invasive technique of valve and off-pump coronary artery bypass graft, for example which means instead of having a large hole in your chest, you can have, in some cases, the operation done with a robot technology. The same with oral cancer or base of skull cancers, they can be done through the mouth without removing half your jaw. That's somebody's face in there. Normally, you'd have to take the jaw off and get in from the side there, but with this technology, you can avoid major and quite, uh, quite disfiguring surgery some, in some cases, not every case. So that's a great step forward in this technology. This is the Da Vinci platform. One problem is that it's $3.5 million. Uh, to, to buy it. And once you buy the old one and somebody else gets the new one, everybody, all your surgeons want the latest technology, so you start upgrading it before it's running at its lifespan. Uh, why do we use it? Well, it's precise. You can suture in tight spaces. You can see better. The recovery is quicker. People don't have a big hole, so they get up and about and run around quicker. Training is probably easier. You can actually use the dual console method for teaching people, like teaching them to drive. Uh, but we need to develop cheaper, better, and more eff effective technology. It's the one-trick uh, pony at the moment in the market, unfortunately, at the moment, though it's going to change soon. Uh, this is actually a robot operation. You asked me to show you what it looks like. Well, that's a view in somebody, uh, ladies, just for gender neutrality here. Uh, it's not prostate. It's actually taking a bladder out for cancer. So that's the view. You Normally, you're in a deep, dark hole with some blood around. You would be able to look at it from a distance. You have to shine a light from your head into the wound. You've got a magnified 3D view. You can see what you're doing. You get a much better view. You can stop the bleeding more accurately. There's evidence that you get lost blood loss with this sort of surgery than open surgery, and you get a quicker physical and probably functional recovery for most people. Uh, those ends are there slightly about half a centimeter long, the end, those instruments. So uh, you can see the degree of precision. So that's a robot cystectomy in a woman, taking a bladder out. Um, what tends to happen, though, is once you get one in a country, people poo-poo the idea for a robot. Ro robots, of course, as soon as they start coming into countries, that happens. That's over the first few years of robots being available. Everybody wants one. Then you get two, and then the, one, the guy next door gets one, so you get a better one, and it becomes an arms race in, in technology. Uh, some people buy them, and they never use them originally. They use them just to get the patients to come to see them. and then uh, So it is brilliant technology, but it does create a sort of slight... Uh, 
problem with access and also cost. I'll try and show you that. That's the Australian procedural volume of the Da Vinci system. You can see the numbers are being going up year by year. And what's happening is different specialities also are getting involved, gynecology, cardiac surgery, uh, general surgery rather than just urology and prostate cancer. So we're getting an increasing number of cases and they feel they're only penetrating about a third of the centres that need or want or could use robots in the world. So the numbers will naturally go up. This is unfortunately an old UK slide, but what it shows is if you're not careful, if you buy a robot, there's a $200,000 a year service charge. If you only do 10, 10 cases a year, you're going to make cost a lot of per case. It costs three and a half million dollars a capital recharge, and it therefore needs to be spread over a lot of cases. And each in each case, there's about $3,000 worth of extra instruments you need to use. So unless you work at a high volume center, it's almost impossible to make a robot pay. If you work at a high volume center, you can spread those costs out. Then you've got to get the stay in hospital down. You've got to get more patients coming in to, to, uh, to justify the cost. So there's a real big issue for hospitals in cost terms of the new technology. Uh, additional cost of the operation being done on an open method without this technology. I'll finish soon. Just to say there's things changing. Uh, it's really exciting because in, you, know, you can almost imagine this like the Apache helicopter. You look at your surgery, you bring in the MRI scan in the corner down onto the image. You, bring in virtual reality, you may even use fluorescent technology or antibody labeled uh, technology to show you where the cancer is so you can be more precise. That's not there yet, but some of those technologies are available already. Uh, you can control um, the whole operating theater from, from your iPhone or from your mouthpiece now if you're so set up. We'd like to have one of these, but the whole system, the modern operating theater, that would cost a few million dollars, as would the next generation of single port robots. That's the next Da Vinci. 3.5 million dollars. Um, this is the uh, British system that's about to be launched, Cambridge Medical, which will be half the price and probably almost as good, but that's the only competitor that's in the market and it's not really the market yet, it's about to be launched. There's no competition to it. So hopefully we'll see prices being driven down, but also some more Australian involvement in terms of development as well as what they're really good at here, which is adoption of technology for patients. Thank you. Thank you, David. Unfortunately, we've only got a few seconds left. I think we were, <laughs> everyone went way over their, their time or a lot of time. Um, I guess one of the interesting questions I wanted to ask you about some of the medical technology and the ro robotic um, hands, you know, you, you mentioned that costs are coming down. And I mean, is, is, it, is it coming down or is there sort of a lot of IP protection that sort of holds the... Well, the, the problem with Intuitive, they control a lot of IP and are quite aggressive in the States, so they kept other people out of the market. Cambridge one is, is half price for disposables and buy it. Uh, that's the only one coming in the market. It means that Medtronic are bringing one out in about a year and a half's time. Um, so it's cheap. I mean, maybe it doesn't matter. I mean, when I, with CT scans first appeared, MRI scans, they were really expensive. And, they, you know, nobody, nobody had them. They're too expensive. They, you know, most places had three within about five or ten, five years or so. It's, uh, you know, it's all relative. Once you sit into your health system and make sure you get the volume for it, you'll bring the prices down. It's perceived as very expensive because it is. But as they become part of routine use, they'll, they'll, they, you know, the price won't matter so much, to be honest. Just quick last question, I know we're out of time. Leslie, in terms of price and delivery of, of your sort of technology, you know, how has that changed? Or is again, is it the IP and the upfront cost and development that sort of keeps this, this high price for I think the pricing of medical goods is so complex because you get it into, it may be quite inexpensive to manufacture. However, it gets into the pricing with the pharma company where they are either leveraging their own pipeline or combining it with something else. And so it gets 
cost prohibitive at some point. CAR-Ts that we talked about, they're 350000 a year, upwards of 500000 but somehow they can guarantee a cure for certain people. So what is that value and, and the delivery of that? So I think the pricing is very complex. What I hope to do is to create a product that is easier or much more flexible for pricing to, um, to manufacture and, and therefore it will parlay into a better pricing scheme, but um, we'll have to see. Okay. Uh, please join me in thanking Leslie, David, and, and Chris. Before you leave, I'd just like to put up the sponsor slide, um, please. Can you get the slide up? Please thank um, our sponsors for, for making today possible. Um, is that a slide up? Coming somewhere. While we've got it there, also the Connexa staff, our advisory board. Also, big thank you to all the speakers that have come out, you know, all our speakers. We don't hand out bottles of wine or anything like that, but we also um, provide uh, a donation to the Hunger Project, um, which is our CEO, Colin Tate, who most of you would know, um, is going to Uganda in the next week or so. Um, not going to morning tea, that's for sure. Um, so there's the Hunger Project. There's Colin um, on the right-hand side. Um, he's going to go and see one of their uh, projects in Mbali, if I'm not mistaken, Mbali. Um, and the last thing between me and outside is you've got drinks and canapes. Uh, David, Chris, and Leslie will be, I think, hanging around for the drinks and canapes, so please feel free to catch up with them. Um, thank you very much once again for coming out for Equity Summit, and we hope to see you next year. Thank you very much. <laughs>